Though I said last Sunday was our last time on Providence, I um, felt like maybe we weren't done with the prayer issue, and so I'm going to spend one more night on Providence and prayer, as you can see there, Providence and prayer, and uh, just take further the problem we were dealing with right at the end of, of last time. Why pray? if God has ordained everything to happen ahead of time that's going to happen. And what we'll do, we'll pray in a minute to ask the Lord's guidance, but uh, at the end, I've tried my hand at a little, little uh, John Bunyan dialogue here between prayerless and prayerful. And uh, prayerless has all these objections, and prayerful has all the answers. So we'll see if that can be maybe our climactic thing tonight. And maybe there'll be some time for questions, too. Let's pray. Lord, prayer is an unspeakable gift to the human race that you have structure the universe and what comes to pass in it in such a way that prayer is an essential element in causing great things and small things to come to pass. That you have, as Pascal said, granted us the dignity of causality in prayer. And I pray that this will come biblically clearer tonight and then that it won't provide logical stumbling blocks for people, that you are God, that you destine and providentially ordain all things and that that is no hindrance to contradiction of prayer, but in fact a great incentive to pray for people who are hardened against you and who would never come to you unless you worked effectually in their lives. So, Father, help us now not only to understand better, but to pray with more faith and more fervor and more consistency and more fruit. Let that be one of the effects on our church, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go way back to the beginning, September, Heidelberg Catechism. Here's the definition of providence that I believe is a good one. Question 27 in the Catechism, what then is the providence of God? Answer, it is the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What we did then was we moved out in... Uh, concentric circles or maybe in, depending on how you see it, from the most general things like rain and drought 
right down to the human will and right to the very center of that will, the will to believe or not. And uh, I have defended over these past five or six months uh, a view of providence that is completely thoroughgoing in God's rule over all things, including the will of man and including the will to believe or not. And therefore, I am what's commonly known as a Calvinist. Though I have learned these things, I hope and believe from Bible and not from Calvin. Now, what I'd like to do before I read you my little dialogue between prayerful and prayerless and try to put a final explanation on why pray if God is sovereign and providentially ordains all things, I want you to see texts that on the one hand ascribe sovereignty and control and providence to God and on the other hand call for prayer in relation to those things. So I've got a a series of pairs. I don't know how many there are. I just pulled them all together this afternoon. And I want you to see <coughs> a series of, of prayers and texts regarding God's sovereignty and his acceptance of those prayers. So the first one is uh, promises regarding God's answer to prayer just in relation to that definition of providence. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it shall be opened. Or what man of you if is among you when his son asks him for a loaf will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish will, will give him a snake. He won't give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father, your Father who's in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? And uh, in the Old Testament, a text like, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will honor me. So call upon me, and I will act. So I, I, those are simple, straightforward words in the Bible on God's intention and willingness and eagerness to answer prayer. So... If anybody says anything to you that causes you to stop praying or stop believing in prayer, then either they're wrong or you've misunderstood them. One of those two. This is just clear. These, these are beautiful words, and there are dozens and dozens such words in the Bible. Now let's take a few promises and then put prayers over against them. The promises that the elect, those who are chosen by God for salvation, will be safe in God forever. Let's take a few examples here. This is a glorious passage from Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how, shall he, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? The answer to that is no one successfully. There are a lot of people who bring charges against God's elect, but no one successfully. God is the one who justifies. So if God, the ultimate judge of the universe, acquits a person in his courtroom, all other indictments fall to the ground. Who is the one who condemns? 
Well, lots of people condemn, but nobody effectually, nobody can make a charge stick against God's elect. Why? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. So he, he piles up reasons for here why you should believe that the elect are untouchable. They will never be brought to ruin. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything, any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's a very strong set of promises that those who are elect will persevere and nothing will separate us from God. If, if you know yourself elect through faith in Christ, these words are of incomparable comfort. And they spin out in promises like this. I am confident that of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it unto the day of Jesus Christ. All right. Now, if those things are so, how then shall we pray for perseverance. Oh, well, who needs to pray for perseverance, right? It's a done deal. That's, that's human logic that is false. It's not logical at all. But before we see why logically, we just need to see texts to show that that's the case. Let's take Luke. 21:36, for example. Um, Keep on the alert at all times, praying in the Lord, in, praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and stand before the Son of Man. Now, what does that mean right there? Stand before the Son of Man. I think it means be saved. A person who can't stand before the Son of Man has to run away from the Son of Man or fall dead before the Son of Man. To stand before the Son of Man means to, to stand in the courtroom of the last day and hold out your hands as a guilty sinner and still stand. And that happens only by prayer. Pray that that will happen. Go ahead, Verna. The way I would relate that, Verna, to, to what I'm saying here is that uh, since the devil is so strong, since our enemy, the flesh, the devil, the world, are so great, Jesus is saying we would be utterly presumptuous not to pray that we could stand. But now, you, you need to see the implication of this. Jesus has said, I mean, Paul has said in Romans 8, those who are justified will be glorified. 
And this text says, not if they don't pray. Prayer is an essential means that God uses to keep the elect able to stand before the Son of Man. Look at another one. We read this one downstairs um, about the um, widow who comes knocking. He was telling them this parable to show that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Now, pray for what? Well, we'll see as we move on. There was a, in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man, and there was a widow in that city. She kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. V vindicate me. Give me legal protection from my opponent. See that I triumph in relation to my opponent. He's, he's about to do me in. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God or respect man yet, because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. I will vindicate her, I'll rescue her from her opponent, and save her. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said, now shall not God bring about justice or vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night? He will delay, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, you've got the same situation here. It's the same same concern in view. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Well, he will find it among the elect, but only if they cry to him day and night. Will he bring about, he will bring about justice, he will vindicate, he will rescue, he will save his elect who cry to him day and night. What will be in this life? No, not necessarily. Unless vindication simply means keep them safe, keep them justified, keep them forgiven, keep them saved. And then ultimately, vindicated before all their enemies. All right, doesn't matter whether it's in this life or the next. The point is that if we are going to stand before the Son of Man, if He's going to find faith in us, it will be because we have prayed and cried to Him day and night. Anybody, now listen, th this is very crucial, because I remember, I can remember the semester and the classroom and the moment when this came clear to me in a class with Dr. Fullery on Unity of the Bible when we were studying Hebrews. If you read from the Bible a text about your security and conclude from it that you do not need to use means to stay secure, you are lost if you carry that out. The evidence of your security is that you appropriate the means appointed by the Father to keep you secure. And one of those means is the promise that those who do those will be secure, and one of those means is prayer. 
You can hold that. And let's just keep looking at some others. Paul, for example, you know, the same issue, the same argument against prayer in view of our of the providence of God could be applied to evangelism or pastoral labor. If all the elect are elect and if all the people that are elect are going to go to heaven for sure and everybody else is going to be lost, forget church, right? Forget church, right? Forget preaching, forget prayer, forget evangelism. Don't get out of bed in the morning. Listen to what Paul says. It's amazing. It's just amazing how he puts it. Now, Paul wrote Romans 8, right? Paul wrote Romans 8. The glorious security of the elect is what he says in 2 Timothy 2.10. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, those who are chosen. Same word. Those who are elect. I, do, I, do, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. The necessary implication of that verse is nobody gets saved without somebody's doing these kinds of things. Endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. That, this is the means by which it's going to happen. And if, it doesn't, if this doesn't happen, this isn't going to happen. I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they may obtain salvation. God has appointed to save the elect by means of the ministry of the word and prayer. Therefore, you may not conclude, oh, if people are predestined, then we can stop praying and stop doing the word. That's false. It's illogical to say, he has appointed to save the elect through prayer and the word, therefore stop praying and doing the word. That's illogical and unbiblical. Okay, that's one set of pairs, one pair, namely that uh, God gives security to the elect and he tells us they're not secure unless they pray. Here's another one. Promise for future triumph of the gospel in missions. Texts like these. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. That is going to happen. It's going to happen. God said so. These are the words of Jesus. There is no question that that's going to happen. So don't pray for it, right? Don't pray for the spread of the gospel, right? Dead wrong. Don't ever draw such conclusions from predestination or providence or foreordaining. Some, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before thee for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. In other words, providence. The kingdom is the Lord's and he rules and therefore he's going to make sure that all the families of the nations will worship before him. That is somebody from every family, all the people groups, I believe that's what it means, are going to join in the family. This text is going to come true. Now, how then does prayer fit in? 
If, if those promises are true, if, if that is certainly foreordained and predestined by God to happen, how then shall we pray? Well, pray like this. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did with you. God has ordained that the Great Commission most certainly be completed by prayer. To draw the conclusion from that that we should not pray is crazy. Okay? Here's another, there's another couple of texts with regard to that. Matthew... More, more texts on uh, praying for what God has ordained to come to pass. Pray then in this way, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Is there any doubt that the kingdom's going to come? In anybody's mind, the kingdom's coming, folks. It's going to come by prayer and not without it. but it's going to come. It's going to come by prayer. So to conclude, oh, since the kingdom is guaranteed to come by prayer, we don't need to pray. Or, Matthew 9, and seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Therefore, beseech, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. For years, I have been overwhelmed by that verse. This amazes me because that verse comes as close to the paradox of prayer as any in the Bible that I know of because what it, what it sets up is a picture that is almost unthinkable. Who... Who owns the harvest? God owns the harvest. He's the Lord of the harvest. He owns the harvest. Who knows how to run the farm? The hand or the farmer who's been a farmer for eternity and created the farm, designed the farm, knows the farm. It's his. Who knows how to run the farm? Who knows how many hands are needed on the farm? The farmer knows. The Lord knows. So Jesus tells us who know nothing, we know nothing compared to what the farmer knows, to tell the farmer what to do. That to me is amazing. That to me is absolutely stunning that we, little, ordinary, know-nothing, finite, sinful creatures should be instructed to tell the farmer what to do. Beseech him. Plead with him to do what he knows good and well to do and which, according to Matthew 24, 14, he most definitely is going to do. This gospel will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. Through prayer. 
there are always going to be enough missionaries to get the job done when God's ready to get it done through prayer and not without it. So we are told to do it through prayer. So that's a second pair, the triumph of the gospel and then prayers that it triumph. The kingdom come and that the gospel spread. Here's another pair. The promise that all of our needs will be met. Texts like Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's a glorious promise. My God will supply all your needs. Now, when you read that in context, namely 4, 11, 12, and 13, where he says, um, I have learned how to be abased and how to abound, how to go without and how to have plenty. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Then you realize that needs here is a very flexible term. Might mean death. I, I need the grace to die. I need the grace to starve. Um, what you need in order to stand and to glorify God and maintain the faith, you will get. There will always be grace for whatever situation you're in. You will always have the money you need. You'll always have the house you need. You'll always have the car you need. You will always have the education you need. You'll always have the spouse you need, the children you need, the clothes you need, the job you need to live and die well. Okay. So why pray? Because he said to. Give us this day our daily bread. Now why did he tell you to pray that? If he promises you're going to get what you need. Answer, he promised that you'd get it through prayer. He ordains the cause and the effect together. Here's another pair. The assurance that in the cross our sins are all forgiven, no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or another glorious word, Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who, the, um, are sanctified. I think, I need my Greek Testament here to get that tense right, but are being sanctified, I believe. He has perfected you. So there's no condemnation. He has perfected for all time. So how then should you pray about your sins? You should pray like this. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And you should pray like this. Um, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
I thought it was done. Forgive us our sins. If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is now no condemnation. He has perfected. If you confess, your sins will be forgiven. Christian. The gift of the cross is both the effect of forgiveness and the cause of prayer. Let's say that again. What Christ bought on the cross was your prayer and its consequent forgiveness. We will not be forgiven if we don't confess our sins. Now, lest you take that in a way that I don't think John meant it, there are two things he did not mean. One is perfection, because he said in verses just prior to this, you say you have no sin, you're a liar. And he didn't mean if you, if you uh, are speaking harshly to your wife on the way home tonight, and you have a wreck and you die, you go to hell before you have a chance to confess the sin. He didn't mean that. What he means is, if you become cavalier about your sin on the basis of the cross, well, I'm forgiven. And uh, Christ died for my sin. If that begins to creep in and there's no brokenness, there's no agreement, a crying out to God how bad our sins are and an asking for his to cleanse and forgive, then we are simply bearing witness that we're not in Christ. Because the evidence of being in Christ is not only the effects of Christ's purchase, but the causes of the effects of Christ's purchase, in this case, Confession and prayer. I think I've got a couple more. Here's another example, another pair. The promise that Peter would figure foundationally in the future of the church. He said, Jesus to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, I don't want to go into a lot of detail about the exact correlation between Peter and the rock. There's a lot of agreement, disagreement. The, the Catholics make much of this as, as Peter being the first Pope-like person so that the successor of, of Peter in Rome becomes the rock of the church. I don't think that's implied here. I think P 
Peter as representative and spokesman of the disciples is going to be the rock on which he builds the church? That is uh, Ephesians 2.20 on the apostles and prophets, the foundation of the church. The, here's the least I think we can say from this. Peter is expected and promised by the Lord to be foundational element in the building of the church. And then look at this prayer in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31. Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Once you have turned again, do, do what I appointed you to do. Be a strong foundation for the church. Strengthen your brethren. This prayer right here saved the church. Saved the foundation of the church. This promise is true and infallible, but not without this prayer. If God ordains that Peter survive temptation, survive it, not triumph over it, survive temptation, that he might minister as an apostle for some decades in the church of Christ and help lay a foundation for our faith, Jesus did not think that he could say, oh, you're going to be tempted? No problem. You'll come back because God said you're going to come back because you have to be a foundation. Jesus prayed, God, save him. Bring him back. Break his heart. When I look at him tonight, cause him to cry. And he did. Don't ever draw the conclusion when you see a promise in the Bible that you don't need to pray for the promise to come true for you. One more. God has chosen... Uh, <clears throat> it's not Judas. Um, yep. What's his name? Um, Justice. He put forward two men. Joseph called Bersabbath... Uh, and Matthias. Where did I get Judas? Oh, is that right? His name is Judas? Thank you. Oh, oh. Chosen. But you, oh, supposed to be a little posky there. Can't read. Thank you. God has chosen Judas' replacement, but they pray. Okay. They put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show which one of these two thou hast chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside his own place. Now that's simple. That's no big deal. But it, I think it's just another illustration that um, though he says you've already chosen the replacement, we're going to pray and ask that you 
help us participate in this appointment. This is my last text. Because this one, um, I think, gives a window onto the dynamic of God's mind in prayer. This is a text that comes a few verses after the, the new covenant kind of promise about I'll put a new spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So he's, he's talking about the future of Israel and how glorious it's going to be and what God's going to do to bring them back from, from bondage and make them great someday. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passed by. And they will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste, desolate, ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which has, was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also, I think that also, probably referring to all these good things here, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. Now, uh, in the Hebrew, the word darash, I think, yidrash or something like that, it's a passive, I will be sought. This also, I will be sought by the house of Israel for me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So will the waste cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So now here's, here's what I think this implies. And he says this. He's contemplating all these glorious things he's going to do. I'm going to do this for them. I'm going to do this for them. I'm going to do this for them. And I'm also going to be sought by them for me to do this for them. He's, what that text says, I think, is that I'm going to ordain that they pray that I do this so that I can do it. I'm going to ordain that they seek me to make the men like a flock so that I can do that for them as well. I will be sought by them for this, that I do it. And I think that is um, typical of the way God does all prayer. Which leads me now to my little, my little uh, thing to read. And then we're going to have plenty of time for questions or end early because I don't have any more text. So what I want to do is uh, read you my little prayer and predestination, a conversation between prayerful and prayerless. And then we'll start with your questions. Prayerless. I understand that you, prayerful, believe in the providence of God. Is that right? Prayerful. Yes. Prayerless. 
Does that mean you believe, like the Heidelberg Catechism says, that nothing comes about by chance, but only by God's design and plan? Prayerful. Yes, I believe that's what the Bible teaches. Prayerless. Then why do you pray? Prayerful. I don't see the problem. Why shouldn't we pray? Prayerless. Well, if God ordains and controls everything, then what he plans from of old will come to pass, right? Prayerful. Yes. Prayerless. So it's going to come to pass whether you pray or not, right? Prayerful. Well, that depends on whether God ordained it to come to pass in answer to prayer. If God predestined that something happened in answer to prayer, it won't happen without prayer. Prayerless. Wait a minute. This is confusing. Are you saying that every answer to prayer is predestined or not? Prayerful. Yes, it is. It's predestined as an answer to prayer. Prayerless. So if the prayer doesn't happen, the answer doesn't happen? Prayerful. That's right. Prayerless. So the event is contingent on our praying for it to happen? Prayerful. Yes. I take it that by contingent you mean prayer is a real reason that the event happens and without it, uh, without the prayer, the event would not happen. Prayerless. Yes, that's what I mean. But how can an event be contingent on my prayer and still be eternally fixed and predestined by God? Prayerful. Because your prayer is as fixed as the predestined answer. Prayerless. Explain. Prayerful. It's not complicated. God providentially ordains all events. God never ordains an event without a cause. The cause is also an event. Therefore, the cause is also foreordained. So you cannot say that the event will happen if the cause doesn't, because God has foreordained otherwise. The event will happen if the cause happens. Prayerless. So what you're saying is that answers to prayer are always ordained as effects of prayer, which is one of the causes, and that God predestined the answer only as an effect of the cause. Prayerful. That's right. And since both the cause and the effect are ordained together, you can't say that the effect will happen even if the cause doesn't, because God doesn't ordain effects without causes. Prayerless. Can you give me some illustrations? Prayerful. Sure. If God predestines that I die of a bullet wound, then I will not die if no bullet is fired. If God predestines that I be healed by surgery, then if there is no surgery, I will not be healed. If God predestines heat, to fill my home by fire in the furnace, then there is no, then if there is no fire, there will be no heat. Would you say, prayerless, since God predestines that the sun be bright, 
it would be bright whether there is fire in the sun or not. Prayerless. No. Prayerful. I agree. Why not? Prayerless. Because the brightness of the sun comes from the fire. Prayerful. Right. That's the way I think about answers to prayer. They are the brightness and the prayer is the fire. God has established the universe so that in large measure it runs by prayer. The same way he has established brightness so that in large measure it happens by fire. Doesn't that make sense? Prayerless. I think it does. Prayerful. Then I encourage you to stop thinking about problems and go with what the scriptures say. Ask and you will receive. You have not because you ask not. Well, that's my best shot. Questions? Really about this or about anything we've been on for the last six months? And if you don't have questions, we're going to get out early. But we've got um, 25 minutes that we can just talk about anything you want to tonight or in previous nights. So, to be cavalier, but for those of you, antinomianism comes from two words, anti and nomos, and um, different meanings for anti. But to be against the law, to, to be wanting no law, an antinomian believes that uh, since God has died for us in Jesus, therefore uh, no moral imperatives can be put upon us as sanctions for our obedience. That is, it, we can't have a warning given that if you don't do this, then you won't be saved because Christ already paid for our debt and therefore you can't put conditions on our salvation, which is why I wrote Future Grace. That's the whole reason for writing Future Grace. Yes? I, I, I think it is prevalent in a certain form. There's this debate called the Lordship Salvation Debate, and uh, I would be on the side that says that there are conditions of future salvation that saved people must meet in order to be saved, and therefore uh, we would be lost if we didn't meet them. And that's true, even though there is therefore now no condemnation to John Piper in Christ Jesus. And the people on the other side say that uh, the work of the cross is so complete and full and finished that very hard for me to articulate this without making it sound terrible, which I think it is. Um, uh, that you don't have to live any certain way once you believe. I think that would be fair. I think if Zane Hodges were here, he would agree with that. That is a form of antinomianism. They certainly would not use that word. They don't like that word. Um, but it depends on what's meant by it. So this little lesson tonight is one species of that problem. Namely, prayer is one of the things we must do as redeemed sinners to be saved in the end. 
And the reason, one of the reasons why those on the other side from where I would be dislike that talk is because they think it necessarily implies my earning my salvation by prayer. As if fire earns brightness. Carl? When we were studying Future Grace, I remember Riva asked key questions there about vows. I will pay my vow to the Most High. I just read a story the other day. Who was it? Oh, let me think. I think it might have been that Chinese pastor I referred to two Sundays ago. Joanne, Joanne, are you here? What's his name? Wang Mingdao. This came to me. When Wang Mingdao was put in jail as a young man, he, he, he committed, he promised, he said, Lord, if you get me out, I will preach your truth the rest of my life, come what may. Please. And God answered that prayer, and he kept that vow. And I think that's right and good to do. Now, if your question sounds like it's, how often should we do that? <laughs> how frequently, how vital is it? Right. I think that, lest I say something that I can't perform, would, would mean that vows would be rare for that very reason. A second reason is I don't find them in the New Testament prevalent. You know, if something's going to be essential and core in our regular living of our Christian life, I kind of expect it to be there. Uh, and uh, it isn't isn't that frequent in the New Testament. They seem, as I, I mean, as they turn up in the Psalms, they seem to be in crisis, serious crisis. Um, and uh, I, a third reason why they probably shouldn't be normative, that is, doing them every day, you know, you, your car won't start, and you say, oh, I, I promise that I will, whatever, if you'll start my car, that sort of thing. Uh, um, is that they run the risk of being so dramatically misunderstood as negotiating with God in terms of earning things from God. They don't have to mean that. They don't have to imply that, but, but they might very easily, uh, over time, come to mean that. Russ? The question is, have I reflected on or do I have any insight into why God has so set things up in the universe that he has taken fallen creatures into his council chamber, as it were, and given them a role in the uh, uh, council of how to run the universe. Send forth laborers to Kazakhstan. Lord, 
send forth more labels to the Kazakh people, as though, and here we get the map of the universe spread out on the table, and the Great Commission is the triumphant progress of the gospel, and here you have the infinitely wise general looking down on it, and me, standing over here, kind of looking like this, up over the table. I said, how about the people to the Kazakhs? And he's up there, he says, We'll do that. Now, your question is, why in the world would he set up a, set up a universe like that? Why does he do this? And, and uh, I was reading today in some old notes in a class on prayer that I didn't take, but happened at Fuller, from Dan Fuller after I left, and he was reflecting on those things. Let me mention two or three things that, that are possibilities. The Bible doesn't, as I know, just forthrightly say this is why. Number one, um, prayer does two things to us, at least. One, it puts us in the position of beggars over and over again to, to, to cry out to the Lord for mercy, whatever the thing is we're asking for, is a humble demeanor. On the other hand, it's very exalted. It's a very exalted thing, if you look at it from another angle, that he should grant you to hold sway with the mind of God. You have not because you ask not. So you ask and then God gives. So you have obviously had some influence on the mind of God. That's an awesome thing. So it is both humbling and exalting at the same time. I had a meeting with Joseph Son, the president of the Romanian Missionary Society last week. And I just wrote the Star article about this meeting yesterday. He's just completed a PhD dissertation on the theology of martyrdom at the university, in, at a university in Amsterdam. And he, it was kind of a breathtaking two hours to listen to him and to go back and forth with him. And uh, he believes that among many other things, that God created humans to reign with him. Reign with him. And he just shot text after text at me with this. And got this text in Revelation 3 about we will, be, we will sit with Christ on his throne as he sits with his Father on his throne. But it's always a breathtaking text to me that I will sit on the throne of God. I mean, I just, out of here, no way. I'm gonna, I want to be on the ground on my face in front of the throne. Thank you. I do not want that responsibility or that dignity. It is scary. And it's there in the text. And, uh, and so, if he's right, these texts that he referred to, that, that humans are created as co-rulers of the universe. What's the parable of the talents? If you were faithful with if you made 10 out of 5, I will put you over what? 10 cities. So it's San Diego and Los Angeles and Sacramento and, and uh, Portland and, and uh, Vancouver and Minneapolis and Chicago and Detroit and New York and Greenville, South Carolina, Tallahassee. Why? Why would he, uh, I think he means something like that, that in the kingdom, 
human beings will share in rulership. So, um, and, and he does it because he loves us. And there's something inside us that loves to shape and make and guide and organize. And so that's why businesses exist in the world. That's why we're not all singers. Or, or even singers create songs. That we, we are makers from the word go, it seems. So for, out of love to us, he exalts us and he humbles us. And then, move over to the other side, what does God get out of it? And Psalm 50, 15 gives the answer. Call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. So the giver gets the glory. So prayer is woven into the fabric of the universe so that we are exalted through the instrumentality of our praying and humbled by the fact that we're beggars and can't do anything on our own. And God is glorified because every time we cry out to him for something and he gives it, he's shown to be the self-sufficient one and not we. So those would be three, three or four things. Our humility, our exaltation, our participation in the rulership of the world, uh, and God's being glorified as the all-sufficient giver. And prayer, he thinks, would accomplish all of that God-glorifying, human-humbling, human-loving better than a prayerless world. Good question. What's the difference between prayer and faith, especially in relationship to promises which I intimated we needed to ask God to fulfill and not just believe that he would. So is, is faith enough? trying to think now why did Jesus say in Luke 21 to be vigilant in prayer that you might be able to stand before the Son of Man when the key to standing before the Son of Man is justification by faith and my answer is that it flows inevitably naturally out of the heart of faith that we cry out to God for persevering grace if we believe the promise that we will persevere. I'm, I'm going to keep faith as the essential, constant means of appropriating God's promises and His grace and treat prayer just like every other deed we do as a fruit of faith, a result of faith, but one that, uh, in general, is a sure sign that the faith is real. I suppose that's what I would say. But not that you know, any particular frequency of... You know, here's, here's an example I'm thinking of. Uh, I, read, I read the story of the martyrdom of... Uh, 
Oh, forget his name now. One of the English martyrs. John Bradford uh, recently. And how he was dealing with the Lord in prison before they took him to the stake. And he was praying for grace to endure, to persevere, and not cave in. And it seems to me that uh, that's, that's the way a humble, reliant heart facing its own fallibility and, and uh, its own sinfulness will react to, to faith. Faith will bear fruit in a cry to God for a persevering grace, even though faith in the promise that I will keep you is the key. I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer or not. I, I haven't posed myself the question as precisely as you did, and so I'm thinking out loud here and making my way. Phil? That uh, we're called to obey. If we trust God, we will obey God. One of the things we're commanded to obey is the command to pray. I think that's, that's right. Um, but I, I think it's more organic than that. Uh, in that there's something about the very nature of faith that yields like fruit on a tree the acts of obedience we're called to do rather than faith being one thing over there. All right, I believe you. And uh, a word comes, if you believe me, you'll obey me. And then over here, here's an opportunity to obey. And uh, I don't feel like obeying. Yes, but over there it said, if you believe me, you must obey me. Okay, logically to be consistent, I will have to obey. I will now obey. That's not the dynamic of the Christian life. The dynamic of the Christian life is that faith is of such a nature that it ascribes infallible wisdom to the counsel of God such that it would be tomfoolery not to walk in his ways. It also is a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus so that the allurements of sin lose their power and we are naturally drawn into paths of righteousness. The, the, the essence and nature of saving faith is what accounts for these works, which is why I wrote Future Grace. To try to show that you can't have authentic saving faith that is not a good tree bearing good fruit. It's not a perfect tree while we're still in this life, but it will bear different fruit than if it were non-faith. Erna? Yeah, the question is, the question is, when Jesus says, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church, isn't the Petra the confession of the Petros and not the Petros. And, and, uh, and I, I almost mean that. I just don't think that Jesus made that separation. And Galatia, uh, Ephesians 2.20 talks about the, the, the apostles and prophets, not their confession being the foundation of the church, but ultimately I mean 
well, how's, how is an apostle a foundation for the church? And the answer is his teaching, his writings. But it was the apostles who embodied that authority for a generation and provided the foundation that we now stand on. It's in a book now. Almost. But, but I don't think it's separated from the persons of the apostles. Another direction? The question is, it, as you contemplate the scriptures and things like this, it seems like the means of grace by which Christ builds his church and the kingdom advances are fairly simple. Word, ministry of the word, ministry of the word, prayer. Um, and yet in our culture, seminaries and books, and seminars, and conferences, all kinds of techniques are commended to the church to grow. You grow if you do the right kind of mailing. You can grow if you do the right kind of building and grow if the right kind of parking lot and grow if this and that and all the other. And the question was, is there any hope of getting back to the simplicity of what the Bible seems? Sounds like last Sunday morning where I, I got to the end of my sermon. Were, you were here? You weren't here. I didn't think you were. And I got to the end of the sermon. You know, I thought I had said something profound. And when I stood back at the end of my sermon and I looked and I said, all you've really said is read the Bible and pray. <laughs> Which is what I wind up saying pretty much every Sunday as far as means of making progress as a church and in, in society. Um, I have, I have circumscribed hope. My eschatology is one of uh, great darkness and great brightness. <laughs> As the, as the end of the age comes, uh, the love of many is going to grow so cold. But two verses before it says that, two verses after it says that, yes, that's, that's Matthew 24, 12. Matthew 24, 14 says, this gospel will be preached throughout the whole world and then the end will come. That's not cold people that are going to do that. That's red-hot martyr-like people. So you've got side by side as the end comes, the love of many is growing cold, and there are these red-hot people that are ready to lay down their lives among Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and secular pagans. And therefore, if you ask me, will we recover the powerful, life-changing simplicity of the gospel? I would say some people will. <laughs> I don't have much hope for, for America, frankly. I don't. I would be very happy to fall on my face before a great sweeping of the work of God that would bring millions into the church and see our society transformed from the inside out. Um, I have no word from God to that effect. And uh, the evidences I see people pointing to are unpersuasive to me. But I see glorious pockets of power great pockets of power. And I just want to be one. I, I want to torch the glacier. I see this glacier of coldness coming over the church, and I see nothing in the Bible that says Minneapolis has to be frozen out at the end of the age. It's possible that a thousand churches in Minneapolis would be anointed by this simplicity and fire and power and revival 
and we would lift up our torches of prayer and the word and we'd burn a big hole in the glacier and the light of God would shine through as possible. So I, I have my little teeny niche here in the world, right here, and I just want to preach and teach and write and be there to uh, make it as hot, to melt as much of the glacier as I can. And if God is pleased to raise up people like that all over the world, I would be thrilled. And if, if the glacier melted off of America for a season, amen, I want to be a part of that. More important than answering your question about will it happen is to know where the answer is and to stay there, to minister the word in prayer. How are we doing? Oh, our time is up. Now, I think we're done with, with uh, providence. So now you've got to pray like maybe you did already, that I know what to do next on these Wednesday nights. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would uh, correct anything that we've said amiss tonight. It's easy when we're shooting from the hip here and talking to say some things in an imbalanced or unhelpful way. Would you correct that? And I ask that all that's been true and biblical would take root and bear fruit in prayer. God, make us a praying church, praying families, praying individuals in order that we might be humbled, that we might enjoy the, the dignity of our co-rulership and that you might be glorified as the self-sufficient fountain of all grace. In Jesus' name.